Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. We're wrapping up the series today. Jesus invites us into a life of personal ministry. And we're doing this because we believe that the way that we become more dynamic, more impactful as a church is by getting more and more people investing in one another's lives through personal ministry. So the, a church is not supposed to be like a place where we can all kind of just passively sit and listen to one other person speak. There, there is definitely a time when that should be happening, but the majority of the time, the majority of kingdom ministry happens outside of this room. So a church is a place where you go on Sunday morning to be refreshed, to have the vision re-clarified, to be re-energized for ministry, and then you are sent out into the work to do kingdom work in your sphere of um, relationships, in your network of relationships. So we're, we're doing this little service, uh, this little series as a way of launching us into this new way of thinking, um, where we are serious about equipping one another in sophisticated ways for personal ministry. And we're using this definition from Tony Payne in your notes. If you don't have those, you can go back in the back or, um, or one of our ushers, if they can hear me in the lobby, can bring those notes in. If you do not have sermon notes, feel free to walk back and grab those at the welcome desk right now. They'll probably help you as you follow along with, with what I'm teaching, but this definition is in those, service, in, those, uh, in those notes. What is personal ministry? Personal ministry involves forming a loving relationship with another individual with the aim of mutual growth in Christian understanding, obedience, and service of others. So it's being, it's allowing yourself to move towards another person to cultivate a loving relationship. So one of the things that we need to do is learn how to become friends with people. That's kind of a lost art in our culture too. But you learn how to become friends with someone for the sake of investing, mutual investment in each other's lives. And this is where real profound, deep spiritual transformation happens over the years of mutual investment in someone's life that you really care about. This isn't like um, a six-week Bible study that you're discipling this person by taking, through this, taking them through this curriculum in six weeks. It's a longer, more relational investment where you're strategic, strategically bringing Scripture into your conversations, praying for one another and praying with one another. And that's where the money's at. That's when a church begins to become dynamic and fruitful in ways that it never would if people weren't invested in that type of lifestyle. So we've been sitting with this passage, Luke 5, 1 through 11. The first week, the first teaching was Jesus pursues and invites the disinterested into a life of personal ministry. So even if you're not interested in that right now, Jesus is still going to move towards you to invite you into that type of lifestyle. We're going to see that in the passage that we, that we reread today. Uh, last week we talked about Jesus lavishly provides all we need as we step into a life of personal ministry. And this week we're going to look at the, the response of Simon Peter and James and John when they left everything, they surrendered everything and followed Jesus. 
the radical nature of the call and the radical nature of the response. So if you have your Bibles with me, you can turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in the sermon notes. And I'm going to begin with verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let it down let down your nets for a catch. Now, Simon Peter had no way of knowing this, but Jesus was about to lavishly repay him for allowing him to use his boat. And we see this generosity all over Scripture with Jesus. We know that, for example, Jesus' first miracle tells us that if, you're, if you were getting met, uh, married back in the day when Jesus was walking around on earth, that it was a really good idea to invite Jesus to your wedding because he gives really, really good gifts. He gave the last gift of the wedding at the end of the week, because the wedding was a week-long celebration. It was a lifetime supply of vintage heavenly wine. That was his gift to the married couple. Uh, He was generous. It disproves our suspicion that God is like a stingy, scroogey God. He's incredibly lavish in his provision for our lives particularly as we step into the life he's invited us to live of personal ministry. Verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Good move, Peter. Good move, Peter. It's a smart thing to do to take God at his word. And however difficult it is or however unbelievable it is for you to respond and do what he's asking you to do, He will make up for it. He rewards steps of faithfulness. It's who he is. We take one little step of obedience and he comes a million miles towards us with provision and care and good things because he delights in us. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. One of these men is not like the other. That's what Simon realized. There is, some, there is one person in these boats with us that is not like the rest of us. There is someone in this boat who somehow is able to control nature. There's someone in this boat who says to let down our nets, and we've been fishing all night, and is able to, to gather up enough fish so that it's actually breaking our nets so that our boats are actually sinking beneath the weight of the fish, and I've never caught a catch like this before. Simon Peter sees in that moment that Jesus is more than just a man. 
he realizes that Jesus is God. Now, if you're familiar with scripture, you know that this, this sounds an awful lot like somebody else's call to ministry. Do you remember who this is? It sounds an awful lot like Isaiah's call to ministry. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, it's in your notes, we, we see that Isaiah is this prophet in the Old Testament that actually gets invited into, somehow gets transported to the throne room of God. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne. He sees these angels around him worshiping the Lord. And his response to this miraculous heavenly vision sounds very similar to what Peter said when he realized who Jesus was on the boat. He says, Woe, this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a, it's a very, very humbling thing to see God as he is. Peter saw him in the boat. Peter saw a man in the boat who could command nature. Peter saw a man in the boat that could provide for him in ways that nobody else had. And he, he had been listening to the teachings because Jesus sat in his boat and taught. So he had been listening to the teachings. And then he saw what Jesus could do in addition to the teaching. It verified who Jesus was, which is what Jesus' miracles did. They were meant to verify who he was. And Peter put it together that this is God. And then Jesus invites him into ministry out of that realization. So look at verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Why was he afraid? We see why he was afraid in verse 8. It was because of how sinful he was. Like, oh, you are perfect, you are moral, you are holy in every way, and I am sinful. And there was a paradigm shift happening for Peter here. It was how Peter viewed God. Because Jesus was essentially saying, you know, I see your sin, and I'm not going anywhere. I see your sin, and I'm moving towards you anyways. I see your sin, and I have plans to use you in ways that you could have never imagined. I see your sin, and I'm going to give you the most meaningful and fulfilling life you could possibly dream of. I see your sin, and I'm going to impact a lot of people's eternity because of you. I know you're flawed. This is him speaking through Peter to us today. I know you're flawed. I know you're broken. I know you're sinful. I know you're crazy. I know you're inconsistent. I know you're flaky. I know you're all of these things, but I'm here anyways, and I'm planning on using you anyways, because that's kind of the point. Because people are going to look at your life and at your weakness and see strength and see power and see things that you aren't, because it's me at work in you. I'm inviting you into this. I will carry out the work. And if we're not careful, we can have this a suspicious attitude about God today that he doesn't actually love us, 
that he does kind of actually want to reject us. You know, Pastor Al says all the time that bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. And I'm actually in the midst of rooting out some strange theology that somewhere along the line I picked up. I'm trying to disentangle myself from this weird theology that somehow says the Father is actually a little bit annoyed with us. The Father is actually a little bit disappointed with us. The Father actually wouldn't mind punishing us a little bit if it wasn't for Jesus who's like holding them back and saying, I know they're disappointing. I know, trust me, I lived with them. I know they're a little bit off. I know they're sinful. I know they're not consistent. I know all of those things, but I died on the cross for them, so you're not allowed. So you can't. This was part of the deal that we made. You're not allowed punishing them because I died on the cross for them. That's not how the Trinity works. That's not the case. The Father is full of and overflowing with love and delight for you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. The Father delights in us. And so he sent, the shape of his love is sending his Son into the world so that we might become part of his family forever because someone did need to be punished for our disobedience and for our sin. And, it ha and so the Father willingly sent the Son. There's all sorts of verses that you can go to to rest in the love of the Father. One that someone sent me a long time ago, Zephaniah 3.17. It's a picture of the Father de delighting, joyfully laughing over his children. If you don't get that, that the Father's not mad at you, that the Father loves and delights in you, then you're going to have a hard time with everything else that I say. Brennan Manning, again, and I've used this quote before, define yourself radically as someone beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. The primary way that you are meant to identify yourself as a son or as a daughter that's beloved by the Father. Remember, the new covenant, God says the new covenant, we will be known as his children. He says, I will be a father to you. We, you can't overemphasize the father's love for you. So Jesus says to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Here's the difference between catching fish and catching men. When you catch a fish, you catch something that is dead or alive and you make it dead. You use it up for itself. You use it as a resource. It's alive and then you catch it and it's going to be dead. <laughs> Catching men is you take something that's dead, you take someone that's dead and you make them alive in Christ. That's what it means to catch a person. That's what Jesus is talking about. That true life can only be found in union with Christ. And when you walk someone towards the Father in the power of the Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ, that person, you know, you read this meme online all the time. It's not, it's, it's not that person who is bad becoming good. It's that person who is dead becoming alive in Christ. That's what Christianity is. That's what it means to catch men, to walk with people towards life in Christ forever. And we do so with the same humble disposition that Peter demonstrates here. We, 
we share the gospel with others out of a profound recognition of our own sinfulness, our own brokenness. The posture is, I'm a sinful person who has been saved by the grace of Jesus, and you can be too. Not, I'm morally superior to you, and I'm sharing a message that will save your life. (laughs) Not, God likes me more because he told me first, but I'm still going to save this uh, share this message with you. Any sense of moral superiority and you don't get it. <laughs> Jesus made sure that Peter understood. Peter said, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Good, you got that. Don't ever forget that. Now go and catch people. Go and do ministry. Out of that realization, and don't ever forget where you came from. I had to have someone tell me that one time. I was getting this sense of moral superiority. I get it, and the rest of these clowns don't get it in the world. The world's, you know, falling apart. If they would just, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not like them. That's not how Jesus operates. I had to have someone say to me, because I was getting into that mode of thinking, um, your problem is you forgot where you came from because I've heard your testimony. I know what you were like before Jesus and you've forgotten that. We can never forget the moment where we finally said to God, depart from me from a sinful man and Jesus says, it's okay, I got you. You're in the family because of what I did, because of the price I paid, but don't ever forget that you were a sinful man and that you still are. You have a new identity. You'll always struggle with sin, but you'll always be getting better. But it's only because of the work that I've done. It's only because of the Holy Spirit. It's only because of Jesus. It's only because of the invitation of the Father. Again, and I, I go to this verse a lot, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, but I think it's a verse that we would all do well to memorize to, to guard us from getting um, a feeling of superiority that we get it and other people don't. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You know something about scripture? What do you have that you did not receive? Your mind was illumined by the Spirit of God to give you that. You're starting to make better decisions. What do you have that you did not receive? The Spirit of God is helping you move towards people in love. You're you're starting to have victory over certain sin in your life. Don't get cocky. What do you have that you did not receive? Spirit of God is giving you that victory. You have a message that'll save the world if they'll hear it in Christ. What do you have that you did not receive? The Spirit of God opened your eyes to the validity of that message. You didn't believe it. You didn't pursue him, he pursued you. Remember, Peter wasn't interested in Jesus at first. He was busy washing his nets. Jesus went to him. He wasn't in the crowd here in Luke 5 where, of people that were listening to Jesus. So what right does Peter have to judge other people who might not seem interested at the moment? Zero right. And what right do we have? Let's look a little more carefully at this statement. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, Peter is still feeling the boat sinking beneath the weight of the catch of fish. And what he was learning is if Jesus invites you to something, and if he invites you to do something, he will provide the results. So Jesus invites Peter into a life of ministry and and promises to do the heavy lifting. He says, I will make you 
a catcher of men. And Jesus did all the working, work in catching the fish, and he promises to do the same with catching men. Now, what does this mean for us as Jesus is inviting us into a life of personal ministry? What does this look like for us? It means that we can, we can keep it fairly simple. We don't need to make things more complicated than necessary. It means we can rely on Jesus to do the heavy lifting, and we'd be wise to do so. Um, and so I wrote some thoughts in, in your notes. You can follow along very, very simply with this. This is just a couple of ideas that we can try on for personal ministry and to step into in a gentle way into a life of personal ministry in the spirit of casting a net and allowing God to provide the catch. The first thing is pray that God would open your eyes to opportunities to partner with him. That's a very simple thing. You could just pray that every morning, literally that sentence, God, open my eyes for ways that I might partner with you today. I know that you are always at work. I know that when I wake up in the morning, you've already been working, maybe even through the night on people's hearts that I will be around today. I know that I stepped into a world in which you were always, always at work, and that's the paradigm for me to understand the rest of my life. I wake up every morning and say, I'm not going to go make this happen. I'm, I want my eyes to see what you are already up to, because I don't want to be working over here if you're over here. I want to see that you're over here so that I can join you. That's the first thing. Just, just wake up in the morning and ask that you might be a part of what he's doing. The second one, very simply, is remain curious and be watchful. Live with a sense of uh, you know, adventurous expectation. I've prayed that God would allow me to see where he's at work. And I'm going to go to work or I'm going to go to school. I'm going to take a walk and look for it. And I'm going to be curious about it. I'm going to pay attention to what he might be doing. The next one is gently respond to opportunities. Be the person at work or at school or in your neighborhood who's known for seeing people. You're known for seeing people. You're known for recognizing when someone's a little bit off. You're known for moving towards people and saying, hey, are you okay today? Tell me about it. What's going on? You're known for gently coaxing people out of their shells through good, loving, gentle questions. It's a way of us being responsive to the needs of people around us that God might be stirring. And then provide an invitation to get to know God better with them, perhaps a non-heroic way of reading the Bible together. It's you know, the, probably the best person I've I know who's, who's done this and given his life to this is a man named KP. He, was a, um, he is a, uh, a retired Presbyterian pastor, mentor, who just discipled countless people. <laughs> um, you know, every, time I, every time I'd go out to lunch with KP, someone, and this is not an exaggeration, someone would come up to our table and, and hug KP and say, you know, I'm... You saved my life. You started reading the Bible with me when I was 25 years old or 15 years old or 40 years old or 60 years old. And you awakened me to something that I never knew about. You introduced me to Christ and I just want to tell you how my life is going now. It happened all the time. I remember going with KP once. He, he said he met someone in the weight room. He was like, I don't, I don't know how old KP was. He's probably, uh, I don't know, he's upper 60s maybe, but he would go work out so he could be around people. And uh, he met this guy that was, I think he was a tattoo artist. 
uh, in the weight room, and, and after we had lunch, um, he said, I have to go drop this. This is in Orville. He said, I have to go drop this, this, uh, this Bible off of this man I, I met in the, in the weight room. So we, we go to this tattoo parlor, and he gives the guy the Bible, and, and uh, then he comes back out in the, in the car, and he's, he's just praying. He's like, oh, Father, draw that man. Father, draw that man. He's just it's so endearing and amazing hearing him pray for people. And then I asked him afterwards, like, when are you going to go back and, like, follow up? What's your, um, what's your strategy? Do you have, like, a certain study that you take him through? And he just looked at me. He's like, I don't have the guy's life planned out, Greg. I gave him a Bible. We're going to see what happens. I mean, I've, I planted a seed. You don't, ha- don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. He was, a, he was an amazing mentor for me in that way and an amazing man. And then after you do all that, and maybe for you it's just, you're meeting with someone at school or at work or in your neighborhood, and it's like, hey, I, I, I understand how life can get really hard, and I found that um, one person that I turn to consistently to get me through the hard stuff and who comes near to me is Jesus, and you might have heard some weird things about him. You probably heard some things that weren't true about him. If you want to get to know what he's really like, maybe we can get together once a month and just, or once a week, just read a chapter of John together in the Bible. It's kind of his autobiography, one of them. Maybe you'd like to do that. Because it actually really does take steps of faith like that to begin introducing people to Jesus, and we don't have to be afraid to do that. And then the last thing is you go to bed at night and let God do what God does. And in your notes, Mark 4, 26 through 29, it's beautiful. And I, I, I remember this every Sunday when I'm driving home from church after I preach, that Jesus talks about a farmer who plants a seed in the ground, then he goes to bed. And it grows. And he doesn't, he's not out there like, oh, grow, grow, grow. He plants the seed in the ground and then he goes to bed. And that's what we do. We plant the seed in the ground through scripture and we don't be anxious about it. We trust that the spirit will do what the spirit does best. And then we meet him again the next week and we read again. That's what we do. That's personal ministry. Listen, you can't, you can't change anyone's heart. You know that. You can't change anyone's heart, but Jesus can, as he speaks to them, the ever-present voice of Jesus is found in Scripture alone. Let him talk to them. He already showed us in this passage he's capable of doing the impossible, and we're not. By the way, if you want to read about um, Jesus told Peter that he would, he would catch men through him, if you want to read about Jesus or Peter's first catch, it's pretty incredible. His first catch of men was 3,000 people. 3,000 souls were added to the church in Acts 2, 14 through 41. And I wonder if Peter, when he saw 3,000 people being added to the church after he gives a small, humble, not great in, in the ways that we measure sermons, as he gives this small, humble sermon, and he sees 3,000 people being added to the church, I wonder if Peter thought back to Jesus telling him, I will make you a catcher of men. I wonder if he thought back to the weight, you know, the boat sinking underneath the weight of the fish. I wonder if it was a moment of recognition for him that affected every other time he preached. Every other time he spoke scripture. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything they owned because they found something far more valuable in Jesus. 
If there was a lot for sale in Worcester and it cost you everything you own to buy it, you would buy it if in that lot was buried a treasure chest with $100 billion in it. And you knew about it. And nobody else knew about it. And let's just pretend there was nothing illegal about that. You just, you just knew that there was, like a, there was just like a lot that it had this treasure chest and for some reason there was $100 billion that fit in the treasure chest and you were the one that knew about it. You would sell everything you have to have that lot, wouldn't you? That's the parable that Jesus taught in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And you know what? It wasn't heroic. That's not a heroic act. It wasn't heroic for Peter, James, and John to leave everything they owned to follow Jesus. It was an easy decision because they discovered in Jesus a treasure far more valuable than anything they owned. And they left it all and followed him. And when you follow Jesus, nothing you give up can hold a candle to what he'll give you back. All right. How do we wrap this up? How do we wrap this series up? We're, we're, we're going to land the plane here on personal ministry. But we're going to stay with this. We're going to stay with the idea of personal ministry. But we're going to land this series. Uh, I, don't, I honestly don't know who said this first, but it's, a, it's an interesting same statement. They said, if, it begins, if a movement begins in a cave, it ends in a cathedral. If a movement begins in a cave, it ends in a cathedral. That means it started raw, without a lot of resources, and people were willing to meet in a cave. But as the years go by, you know, you end up in this huge, ornate, beautiful cathedral, and, and you have a tendency to start getting a little, I'm talking about me here, you have a tendency to start getting a little soft, missionally. You have a tendency to start lose your edge. Another way of saying that is institutions have this annoying tendency to become institutionalized. You know, institutions have a short memory. We begin to just kind of go through the motions. And this isn't, uh, this isn't a shaming thing. This isn't, I'm not down on anybody. I'm not down on myself. I'm not down on us. I'm just saying that the more we can return to the original call, the more this place, place will just be alive with activity and with new people coming into the kingdom. The more fulfilling your life will be. The more fulfilling this place will be. We cannot settle into the hard arteries of institutionalization. We can't move into a cathedral. We gotta stay in the cave. We gotta stick with Jesus. We've got to look at the examples that the early apostles had for us, and we've got to remember the call and count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, and then say, I'm going wherever you go. If Jesus walked into the room right now, and he said to all of us, leave everything and follow me, would you do it? Sometimes it's when I'm preaching, I have to be reminded by the Spirit that this isn't just ethereal notions and ethereal thoughts and ideas when the disciples followed Jesus, they, they actually literally physically followed him. Would we do that? It's a fun question to think about. It's a challenging, it's not a condemning question. It's fun because whatever he has, it's better than what we've got without him, right? 
Here's the last uh, little quote in the, in the notes. What the church needs is a small community of people who remember together the radical nature of the call of Jesus to make disciples and then to begin, living, to begin living out that call in simple ways through the power of the Spirit by taking small steps of faith. Is Jesus calling you to sell everything you have and follow him? I don't think so. I, I highly doubt it. I think he's more calling you to use what so many of you do this so well, to use what you already have for his sake, for his kingdom. That's what this is about. You don't need to go home and like, uh, be angsty over, uh, does this mean I need to like give up everything that I enjoyed? No. It means you say, this is, I enjoy doing this and it's yours and you can do whatever you want to do. Someone told me once, be passionate about Jesus and then do whatever you want to do because your passion for Jesus will align everything else, else up just perfectly. You're not living for yourself anymore. You're living for him and for his kingdom. That's what it looks like. The emphasis on personal ministry is our way to remember the original intent of our founder, Jesus. That's why we're talking about this. That's why at the heart and soul document that we have, the very top is personal ministry, a call to personal ministry. We're all growing in this way because we believe that Jesus called us to make disciples, every one of us, not just the people that are paid for it. In fact, it gets more interesting when everyone does it. And just see what it'll do. Let's just see what it'll do if we commit to that. If each one of us commits to that, just, let's just see the avalanche of goodness that comes our way through Christ. Because he's, he tends to enjoy resourcing churches in miraculous ways who are going after people that the rest of the, the world isn't. And those people are in your neighborhoods. They're in your schools. They're where you work. Let's ask Jesus to help us to be watchful and to be curious and to join him. It's a long road ahead. There's a lot of work to do. But I'm just tickled pink to get into it. It's going to be fun. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for those, those moments when, when we, um, we saw you clearly for the first time and seeing moral beauty and moral perfection humbled us in a way that nothing else could. Uh, seeing your goodness showed us our darkness even more clearly. It showed us our unworthiness but when you heard us say back to you, depart from me, I'm a sinful person, you didn't depart. You moved closer and you said, that's, that's why I'm here, because you are a sinful person. You laid down your life for us. You absorbed the wrath that we deserved. You paid a rebel's ransom so that we could be in your family forever. And I pray that we would be so awakened and enlivened to that truth in a fresh way that we are running out of these doors to go out into the world to bring that message to the rest of the world around us. That we are sinners, but you love us anyways. We're far from you, but you're drawing near to us in Christ. Help us learn to articulate that message clearly with grace with humility, with mercy, with love, with empathy, with compassion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
check out our website at southsideworcester.com.